0: Love Talk Radio. Good evening. Good evening. I'd like to introduce you all again to Dr. David Moskowitz, a nephrologist, um, a geneticist, um, and he works and founded a company called GeoMed, and he's one of the foremost geneticists and nephrologists in the country. Dr.
1: Moskowitz? Well, Marcel, thank you so much for that glowing introduction. I don't think I can possibly live up to it. I might as well hang up the phone right now.
0: <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't do that at all. Everyone would miss your vast uh, knowledge You have a wealth of
1: knowledge on these subjects. Continuing the topic of abolishing medical slavery with a focus on dialysis tonight, Um, I was thinking I would be joined by a colleague, uh, Emil Shrikanda, who um, is still trying to find his way to the station, and uh, we'll put him on as soon as he gets on. Um, but until then uh, my explanation for why I call disease medical slavery is because I've lost hope that healthcare actually wants to get rid of diseases. The um the, the impression I've had for the last thirty years which is when I happened on my protocol for preventing uh, dialysis in both chronic disease, chronic kidney disease, and then a couple of years later uh, in acute kidney failure, the impression I've gotten is that nobody's interested in innovations that save money and lives because um precisely that reason, they save money and that lives don't matter uh, to modern health care. And tonight I would like to discuss how the work that I've published manages to stay hidden in plain sight for 30 years and how things like this recent gene therapy uh, effort by Vertex Pharmaceuticals for sickle cell anemia, how that can be allowed to proceed when a colleague of mine, Mike Williams, and I published a paper uh, 15 years ago showing that sickle cell can be prevented, The cri- 90% of crises can be easily prevented by adding a, a, one milligram a day of Trandolapril, an ACE inhibitor usually used for blood pressure, but it arrests sickle cell crisis. How could the hematology community that takes care of sickle cell patients, how could they have moved on to bone marrow transplants? Very expensive, very dangerous. Um, and now, how are they moving on to gene therapy? Which um, is completely unprecedented in human beings and is racist, being started with black children and nobody's doing any gene therapy on white children with cystic fibrosis. So not only is it uh, stupid because the people who are doing this trial and more importantly the FDA reviewers and the UK reviewers who evaluated this trial, not only are they ignorant of the medical literature, but they are unethical. How can you prescribe a therapy that may affect the individual for the rest of his or her life when you haven't even tried an ACE inhibitor that's generic and that has a half-life of 24 hours at most, so that if anything goes wrong, you just wait three half-lives, three days, and the drug is gone. So tonight we're going to talk about um, how the medical establishment, and in particular the research establishment, is barking up the wrong tree with the net effect that healthcare doesn't solve any diseases, that um, cost just rises and rises. The cost for gene therapy for sickle cell is in the millions of dollars per patient. Uh, dialysis costs a hundred thousand dollars per patient per year, and there are a hundred and. Thirty thousand patients now in America that start dialysis every year. Just a few years ago, there were only a hundred thousand. So it's increasing at a rate of between five and ten percent a year. Especially because of the aging of the baby boomer generation, which I'm proud to call myself a part of. So I I understand that we have a listener on the phone tonight, has the listener come up with a question yet?
0: Uh, No, not yet. They will raise their hand when they've come up with a
1: question. Okay. Well, I want to pause every few minutes to allow hands to be raised. So (laughs) Let's get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty in how research is done. A hundred years ago, in the 1920s, I consider medicine's golden age. Note that the NIH did not exist yet. Rockefeller University had just been funded and some of the premier work on bacteria and uh, tuberculosis was being done at the Rockefeller. And it actually uh, formed the basis for Sinclair Lewis's biography uh, story of uh, Arrowsmith and the microbiology professor that he looked up to and that he patterned his life after. In the mm-hmm. 1920s, people who came across a patient would publish the case report. And so there were case reports of three people. For my namesake's disease, Moschkowitz disease, it, which is thrombotic, thrombocytopenic purpura. Um, it, the initial report only had three people. It's abdominal pain, low platelets, and um, purpura, or purple skin from um, hemorrhaging from bruising of the skin. Nowadays, after the NIH was funded in the 1940s, ostensibly to uh, train research scientists who could go out to the the new medical schools being founded in the boondocks. Now that once the NIH got fund, founded and funded, the uh, funding rate, the acceptance rate for grant application through the 1960s was 80%. In other words, for every five grants, four of them got funded. In the 1960s, the NIH decided that they wouldn't fund clinical research anymore. At that point, drug companies were still doing quite well. It was before the age of managed care. Um, managed care has basically killed the branded drug industry, preferring to use generic drugs instead. As a result, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has been consolidating, i.e. shrinking, for the last 35 years. So the, the NIH in the 1960s left all clinical research to the pharmaceutical company and got out of it altogether, instead preferring to uh, fund mechanistic research. So model systems, not complex human beings, but model systems that could completely elucidate a, a disease pathway. And so mice and roundworms and bacteria and most of all viruses got funded in cell culture, got funded in the 50s and 60s and ever since. Because the idea was that human beings are far too complex and that we should do like the physicists did in the the 1920s with the hydrogen atom, which they picked because it only had one proton and one electron. It was the simplest element possible. And Schrodinger solved um, the hydrogen atom and then he wrote a book in 1948 which was very influential said uh, about what is life and said just like we solve physics um, and it led to the atomic bomb so biologists should solve life uh, by studying model systems and nothing as complex as a human being so Basically what happened over the last 60 years is that nobody studies patients anymore. If you're a rich pharmaceutical company, you'll spend the necessary hundred million dollars to bring a new drug to market. But if you're just a mom and pop kind of doc with patients who have unsolved diseases coming through your door uh, there is no money uh, to, to support investigation. There is especially no money for generic drugs. Generic drug manufacturers are essentially chemists. We spend no money on advertising and no money on research because the drugs are not generic. They have no business control and somebody could come in selling the drug at a slightly lower cost and immediately capture the managed care market, just as AstraZeneca did with lisinopril, the ACE inhibitor that everybody's on because AstraZeneca uh, priced it to uh, to be lower than any other ACE inhibitor in the market. So there is no general awareness that Quinacril is the only ACE inhibitor available of the 12 or 15 that have been made and have since gone off patent. There's no appreciation that quinapril is, is the best at preventing 90% of kidney dialysis from chronic renal failure, from diabetes and hypertension. As a result, when the FDA found nitrosamine contamination, in two out of four companies, assembly lines, making Quinapril about a year or two ago, um, those companies stopped making it because there was too much trouble to clean up the nitrosamine. And the other two companies that made Quinapril just stopped because they didn't see any business reason to, be, to keep making one of, you know, a dozen ACE inhibitors when everybody was on lisinopril anyway. Here in Florida, Publix, our grocery chain, offers lisinopril for free, just like they do metformin for diabetics. It's hard to compete with free if you're a generic drug company. So, because of our sorry state of clinical research, um, quinopril production was stopped globally And my patient, who was on in June, Alice Lowe, has had to go on another ACE inhibitor that is very close in structure to Quinapril, but not exactly the same. I'm happy to say that she did well the first week. She did poorly the second week, and she seems to have stabilized the third week. But she is on a massively higher dose of morexapril than at least six times higher um, than she used to take quinapril. In other words, morexapril is a little bit bulkier. It doesn't fit into the active site of the ACE enzyme nearly as well or as tightly as quinapril, And so a much higher dose of morexapril is required to have the same effect. Secondly, her hematocrit, which falls as kidney function falls, um, suddenly drops because the ACE, uh, in, uh, the ACE enzyme actocyte is supposed to also degrade a compound of four amino acid uh, tetrapeptide that uh, interferes with red blood cell production. People on dialysis always have anemia and part of the reason is because of the four amino acid compound that normally gets degraded by ACE, but with kidney failure doesn't. Anyway, here we have ALA-1920, an example of a single patient who shows us that the ACE active site does two different things. One part of it prevents kidney failure, and another part of it degrades this uh, tetrapeptide involved in red blood cell production. So we're still learning from the patient, something we could never learn from a model system, just like doctors did in the 1920s. But
0: Dr. Moskowitz, I've been writing so many while you've been speaking. So I have several questions. I don't think after writing and reading it several times, I understand it, but like most things, at least that I'm aware of, people can't retain this much information. So if you're going to a doctor and you have... Um, you're right before end-stage renal failure and you see yourself heading there and you have these pre-existing conditions, diabetes and high blood pressure. What would you say to your doctor that would prevent him from turning you over to a dialysis machine? What, what could you say to him? If you had a regular doctor, it was before he referred you to a nephrologist.
1: Well, I would say here in Florida... We have a a very obnoxious ad that comes on um, where um, a guy gets on the TV screen and he says, sell to Bobby. And he's talking about your house. He'll buy Mm -hmm. your house sight unseen without any repairs or staging or or anything. Just sell to Bobby. What I would tell Mm -hmm. your doctor is I wanna talk to Dr. Dave. Before you put me on the dialysis machine, I need a second opinion from Dr. David Moskowitz at genomed.com, G-E-N-O-M-E-D.com. And I was actually fairly depressed that nobody in the world could stay off dialysis anymore because of this inadequacy insufficiency of quinifil but thank god is great but well enough i think to still keep people off dialysis until i can get one of these four companies to uh start the assembly line up again to to make more clinical so sell to bobby talk to david that would be my advice if you email me by, con- by clicking on Contact Us at genomed.com. Mm-hmm. I will email you back within twenty four hours, and usually faster than that.
0: So your advice would be that when they go to their doctor, and you, and naturally you would ask for a second opinion before you would go on some machine, um, that they could simply email you at Geotech com,
1: and you would
0: contact them back
1: yes I would I would deal directly with the patient um, because of the telemedicine laws during COVID um, it is it became possible uh, at least briefly for anybody anywhere um, to get a medical consultation it's not clear just how the telemedicine laws have tightened up since COVID became less of a pandemic. But I uh, feel preventing dialysis is so important to a person staying alive that I will be happy to uh, take care of them, basically, uh, via telemedicine and establish a patient-physician relationship with them. And so for Alice Lowe, I call in, I used to call in her Quinapril, and now I call in her Moexifil to her pharmacy. And she emails me her blood pressure almost every day, and I make adjustments in her meds.
0: Now, would would other people need to be monitored that closely? Is this medication... um, uh, is it that volatile that you would need to have your blood pressure taken every day and that, that your doctor, in your case, your nephrologist, would need to keep up with your blood pressure day by day to make sure that you are receiving the right dosage?
1: Well, um, most nephrologists don't um, because the truth is most of nephrologists don't mind if their patients end up on dialysis because that's where the cash register starts ringing. I, on the other hand, hate dialysis with a passion. I really consider it medical slavery. And so I, I uh, obsess much more intensely over things like daily blood pressures and uh, doses of of, of appropriate ACE inhibitor, previously quinapril, but now molexapril. I'm sure most nephrologists have never heard of molexapril. I hadn't heard of it until just recently, until a few months ago. And um, it's very hard to get other physicians to carry out your plans for a patient. I, I thought they would be interested, but uh, nobody, and I don't like it either, nobody likes uh, being on the hook, being responsible for somebody else's protocol. So I have no problems um, essentially putting my mouth where my money is and uh, telling the patient what they should take and then following their kidney function and their potassium and their bicarbonate. So you ask how, how critical is this? And the answer is the closer you are to dialysis, the more critical the follow-up should be. So Alice Lowe was told to go on dialysis June of 2018. So I was on her case, you know, pretty much every day for the first year and a half, and then and she was stable, and then we sort of touched base at less, less frequent intervals. She was paying me by the month, and finally I realized there was no reason for her to keep paying me because she was disabled, so I would check in with her every few months. And then things just hit the pan um, recently uh, in the last six months or so. So we've been in very close contact ever since, especially because she couldn't get any more Quintipra.
0: Now, I've been hearing about a drug um, called Farxiga, F-A-R-X-I-G-A,
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, if you're about to um, concerned about renal failure. And um, so, it's really a graphic kind of commercial. It actually, you know, shows where you'd rather be. Yeah, a the to dialysis. To dialysis. There. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks yeah, the like dialysis. the dialysis Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, got people out in the park. And then it, it ends by uh You know, having this grim picture of a dialysis chair that looks exactly like an electric chair and might as well be because average life expectancy on dialysis is only two years less if you're above 80, maybe more if you're below 60. It's worse than cancer. Um, It's worse than cancer.
0: I don't think people know that. You know, like we're all aware of cancer, but I don't think people are aware of how deadly dialysis is, how short the lifespan is once one is on dialysis, because they always bring up that, you know, there's always someone that's an exception to the rule. You know, they're always talking about one that was on it for 25 years and 30 years, and they certainly would have been dead. of course, they would have been dead without the machine, but... Your average patient does not survive 30 years on dialysis.
1: Yeah, there's really only one group, and that's the the 5% of dialysis patients who have polycystic kidney disease and no other organ involvement. The other 95% have diabetes and hypertension, and they die from heart disease. And it's so hard to... Yeah. Yep, that's Mm -hmm. what kills you because it's a systemic – it's basically atherosclerosis. It's systemic um, hardening of the arteries, just happens to hit the kidneys first, but eventually um, you either have a heart attack or heart failure, you get a stroke, Um, your blood vessels essentially crap out. And the beauty of ACE inhibitors, especially the ones that I use, quinapril and nomoexapril, is that I think they're the most potent inhibitors of hardening of the arteries. So take diabetes, for example, which I happen to have. Um, It's accelerated. It's characterized by accelerated atherosclerosis. In small vessels like your eyes and kidneys, And in large vessels like the arteries to your feet, so you get amputated toes and and um, below the knee amputations and above the knee amputations and so forth. So it's all just blood vessels. It's flow through blood vessels, and it looks like it looks like ACE, this enzyme that I love, is um, regulates blood flow in all the vessels, uh, any vessel with pressure, uh, ACE is the, is the sensor that keeps flow correct. And it, um, it's sensitive to uh, turbulent flow. So it's a mechanosensor. There's a lid on it that blows open and opens mm-hmm. up the active site so that you make angiotensin tension, too in areas of turbulence. And then the ingiotensin II has multiple effects, starting with uh, thrombosis, clotting, plaque formation. And so in the carotids there's a bifurcation where the common carotid um, forks into a left and the right, um, and, or sorry, into an internal and an external carotid. So there's, a, and there's one on the left side, one on the right side. So this bifurcation is internal and external. And uh, there's always fla- uh, plaque, uh, this cholesterol plaque, um, distal, like on the far side, downstream of the bifurcation. Now, the bifurcation creates turbulent flow. So normally, flow in the pipe is um, is well-behaved. But if you divide the pipe in, into... Two, the Mm -hmm. streams have eddy currents and and turbulent flow, and I think it's that turbulent flow that activates ACE, and the proof of that is that the plaque, which is a product of angiotensin II, which is what ACE makes, is downstream from from the bifurcation, not upstream, it's in the area, precise area where turbulent flow occurs. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is, How come high sugar accelerates your atherosclerosis? How come you get a heart attack in your 50s or 60s if you're diabetic, instead of in your 70s like everybody else? And you know, for a long time, um, the, the nobody actually had a really good explanation. The idea was that just the extra sugar you know, glazes your proteins like a Thanksgiving ham and that the glazed uh, proteins are toxic somehow. And a, uh, a guy I went to middle school with, uh, junior high, Mike Freeman, who now calls himself Mason Freeman, is at the MGH and has made a career on finding the receptor for advanced glycosylation end products which are receptors to buying gooey proteins going on. I think what's going on is that sugar, glucose, is an aldehyde uh, and it wants to get oxidized to a, a carboxylic acid and it needs a partner. When it gets oxidized, it needs a partner to be reduced. And if you look at the structure of ACE, there are um, three uh, sustained-sustained bonds. And if you uh, reduce the middle one, the sidewall of the active site opens up. So I think in addition to being a mechanosensor, ACE is also a redox sensor. And why is that important? because that's how the lung works. In the lung, there's this thing called VQ matching, V for ventilation, Q for perfusion. The idea is that the lung doesn't want to send blood to an area that is, um, it doesn't ventilate, you know, doesn't get any gas, it is like socked in with pneumonia. And what happens is the blood supply to that part of the lung gets choked off, gets vasoconstricted. Well, there's more ACE in the lung than any other organ in the body. Why is ACE there? I think because when there's no oxygen uh, coming into the lung, in the little region of the lung, ACE gets activated by hypoxia, by lack of oxygen, and lack of oxygen is equivalent to reducing conditions, high reducing conditions, and uh, the side wall of ACE opens up, makes angiotensin II. Angiotensin II is the most potent vasoconstrictor there is. And so immediately there's vasoconstriction of the blood vessels that um, feed that area of the lung. And um, so I, I think ACE is like, super important and the way to prevent diabetic complications may be not so much tight control of sugar but actually an appropriately high enough dose of the right ACE inhibitor because the amplification step for the sugar is actually ACE. ACE is a a tremendous amplifier and, and is involved with very potent um, Angiotensin two, and the sugar by itself, you know whether you have a sugar of a hundred or a sugar of one hundred fifty is not that big a deal. but if you suddenly activate ace, uh, a sleeping giant into being you know suddenly three times more active, that is a big deal
0: so that is a big deal, so let let me understand. Understand it's in really layman language if so it's not really what your glucose level is so much as it is whether or not this aCE inhibitor activates
1: it and makes it much more lethal well so, if you have an, if you have an aCE inhibitor on board, you should mm-hmm. be protected from uh, your your level of sugar, no matter what it is.
0: Well, aren't most diabetics not told that?
1: I'm sorry, I missed what you said.
0: Aren't most diabetics, uh, they have no knowledge of this. I mean, it, everybody's been taught to control your sugar intake. You know, you don't right. eat white and you don't eat sugar. and that's basically how you live your life. It's some weird version of the Atkinson's diet.
1: Right. Well, we have a lot of um, um, sort of screwy public health messages. Now, I did lose 35 pounds, and I could go off insulin. And so mm-hmm. I have to say that weight loss helps in the 80s. But, um But I think, you know, obsessive control of sugar is only a small part of the equation because there are plenty of people who have extremely tight control of their sugars and nevertheless have heart attacks or strokes and it, it's always frustrating. Um because they couldn't have done more. Or there are people with, you know, super low cholesterol who managed to have multiple heart attacks too. I mean there're clearly factors that we don't know about yet but which could make life a whole lot easier for people who can't change their uh, can't change what they do for living. I mean I used to work at the VA and you could not ask somebody to change their quality of life they just wouldn't do it. And so you had to work with um, with what people could do which was to take pills. But you couldn't get them to join the Y or stop smoking.
0: Hmm. Um. We work with a lot of veterans. Uh, anyway, I work with a lot of veterans and something else that I do. Do you find it just difficult to work with veterans as opposed to regular patients, or?
1: Oh no, I love veterans. I I worked for eleven years with the, at the VA in St. Louis. And it was the privilege of my life. I, um, I, 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 they, you know, they're not hypocrites. They tell you like it is. Um, mm-hmm. and i mean, <laughs> I had a guy, Carcel DeWalt, who I noticed had clubbing of his fingernails. I mean, he, he his previous doctor was you know, supposed to be an outstanding doctor but hadn't noticed mm-hmm. that he had clubbing. He was following him for, you know, some minor kidney problem, which was never a big deal. Anyway, it turned out his, uh, his PO2, which should be 100 on the room there, was only 40. I mean, this guy, I think he'd worked in a steel mill or something. He had, he had just terminal lung disease. And so I got him an oxygen tank, and um, and you would crank it up to two or three liters a minute. But I followed He was the last patient in my clinic one Friday afternoon, and I got into my car and followed him out of the parking lot, and I saw him take off his nasal prongs um, and light up a cigarette. <laughs> and what makes it funny was the one time he got admitted, uh, because he lit up his cigarette Without taking off the oxygen And it blew up in his face So he got admitted for facial burns <laughs> I'm not laughing I just recognize that personality um. yeah. Well I love And yeah. there was a guy There was a guy Larry Hagler Who uh, basically went to war With the VA over Because He was taking, um, when I first saw him, he had been in the hypertension section. But when I saw him, his pressure was 104, over 60. He had massive swelling of his legs. He was on a huge dose of Lasix, like already 80 milligrams a day, and on two, two liters of oxygen. And there didn't seem to be anything I could do for him And I thought he was going to die in two weeks. And so I I luckily I had looked at diseases that might have something to do with excess ACE. And COPD, emphysema was one of them. Um, And uh, the more you smoked, it seemed like the more important ACE was. And so I actually tried him on an ACE inhibitor. Which was crazy because his blood pressure was so low, I was terrified that it would go, you know, down into the seventies or something. I put him on the lowest dose available. He came back in a week and his blood pressure had doubled to hundred and eighty over hundred and ten. And he was finally, you know, the hypertensive patient that belonged in my clinic. And what had happened, I believe, is that the the pressures in his lungs were high because of emphysema this is why everybody who is an end stage emphysema patient has normal blood pressures like 120 over 80 um and it, and there, you know nobody ever commented on that when I was a medical student and the reason is because their pulmonary pressures go sky high like up into the 60s and ramipril i think took it down he was finally able to get his right ventricle to deliver blood through his lungs into his left ventricle. He finally had a big enough stroke volume to to perfuse the rest of his body. And his, oh, his, his systemic okay. blood pressure doubled. And so I kept giving him Ramipril just to keep up with his blood pressure. And at the end, I kept him alive for seven years and a month more. And at the end, he was taking... Um, a bottle of ramipril a day. He was taking forty five pills in the morning and forty five pills in, at night of the ten milligram pills. Which is But it kept you know, him
0: alive.
1: Yeah. It kept him alive. <laughs> and when I took when I told Hertz Mary and herself about how wonderful their drug was for C O P D and pulmonary high was to send a waiver uh a patient waiver for larry hagler to sign. they had no interest in um in using ramapril for copd or pulmonary hypertension
0: um i'm sorry i was trying to let you know we had another caller on the line but it seems they've dropped Uh, um the, the caller's area code was 402 hmm
1: I don't know where 402 is.
0: I don't know either. But they raised their hands and the other person still doesn't have a question, I guess. All right. Then. Yeah. So 402. I don't assume, know what you means. Let's assume I, 402
1: I, is rural America. Because the issue yes. of rural health keeps coming up. The idea well, is I'm that sure if you don't... Does. If you don't have a hospital with a state-of-the-art ICU and MRI and CAT scan machine, then rural health is miserable. But I would like to say that preventing dialysis is easy to do in rural health, in rural America, because all you have to do is email the patient what dose to take, call it into their local Walgreens or CVS or whatever, uh, pharmacy they use, and that pharmacy is hooked up, you know, through a uh, truck to get delivery of drugs every few days. And so no patient in rural America has to go on dialysis. No patient in rural America has to die of emphysema in two weeks. No patient in rural America has to get a bone marrow transplant or, God forbid, gene therapy for sickle cell disease. So the only thing lacking is. is getting the word out that genomed.com exists, has published on these diseases, and wants to take care of people by email. Um, Dr.
0: Moskowitz, would you direct people where they can find your, your published work on your website?
1: Right. So genomed.com, G E N O M E D. Say no to GE and use medicine instead. Genomed.com. If you go to the the landing page, as we call it, um, on the very first page of the website, there's a uh, a word in the middle in blue, calling, saying publication. And all the stuff is on, pub, on the publications page. Not the sickle cell <laughs> paper, because that's now in PubMed Central, and anybody can download it for free. Um, but the the other papers that might be hard to get, because they're an obscure journal, um, are on my website.
0: Good, good. I think it's really important that people know that. I think um, very often the message doesn't get out because, like most people, um, they're they're an old study that when you see the doctor, your blood pressure automatically goes up when you see the um, the white coat, you know, and that's why they wait a few minutes before they take your blood pressure when you go to the doctor's office because you're automatically intimidated. And that makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, the scary place to be, and you don't know the intentions of the doctor. Are they there to heal you, or are they there just to, you know, draw a paycheck? You don't know that. And then very often they don't speak to you in language that's accessible to you. Every, you know, every industry has its own language. And some people can translate it, and other people can't. And when they're speaking to you, and, you know, it's like speaking to an attorney. Um, Very often when an attorney is speaking to you, uh, you don't know whether he's speaking to you or to himself because you don't know what he's saying half the time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I'm in Washington, D.C., and everything is an acronym. And if you live here, you know, you speak to people here long enough, they start to refer to these agencies you know, by the acronyms and everybody knows what you're talking about. But if you're from out of town and you don't know what they're talking about and they all seem very fluid in the language, you start to feel like, well, maybe, you know, maybe I don't understand. It isn't that you don't understand. It's just that you haven't picked up their jargon yet. Um, So what I do like, Doctor, is that you can swing both between the jargon and between just language that anyone can pick up and understand. Goodness knows I have no training, no medical training whatsoever. Um,
1: but I understand that well, I have, this, very, little, I to have very little, Marcel. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you raised, you opened the Pandora's box of government agencies. And I think yes. we should wade into politics at this point. Because right. I think most, most people feel that our government isn't doing anything for us. We, we send it a lot of money. It wastes some money on, you know, uh, wars. And um, without, you know, exerting much diplomatic muscle at all. And, um, and even healthcare, the money is um, misspent, to put it. The NIH, which I I mentioned before, was established in the 1940s, just Mm -hmm. as the CIA was, um, has outlived its purpose because now there is no need to train people at a a central uh, campus and then have them go out to the boonies of the country because every medical school is up-to-date in terms of its research facilities, And many of the techniques that were, you know, that uh, were initiated at the NIH, like tubular perfusion by nephrologists, aren't even being done anymore. Things have moved to a much more molecular level. The other thing is that genomics... um, finally makes the patient the lab animal of choice. And so there is no need for model systems because we can understand everything we need to just from association studies with a patient and their whole genome sequence. So the entire rationale for there being an NIH, which, um, and especially for the intramural NIH, which is a sycophancy where people don't have to write grants, unlike the extramural NIH where people have to write, you know, 50 or 100-page grants and and sweat months on it, and where the percentile funded is much less than 10%. I mean, we were talking about 80% funding in the 60s. Now, for the last 30 years, only five or six or seven percent of NIH grant applications get funded, and it's huge dollar amounts to the people who have the huge labs and keep getting funded over and over. So the junior faculty never get a chance to get NIH money. The people at the prestigious medical schools already have Howard Hughes money, and they just get more. So it's essentially the rich get richer, and and the, there is no democracy when it comes to research funding. You have to toe the line. You can't even criticize it, let a, lest you never get a grant again in your life. I never got an NIH grant. I got a few VA grants, in American Diabetes and Missouri Kidney. Never got an NIH grant, so I am absolutely comfortable criticizing the total waste of money, 30 billion a year thrown down the drain, half of it for the intramural NIH that never publishes a damn thing. So that's one agency I would clean up. The AHRQ, uh, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality does nothing of the kind. Uh, PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which is new, does nothing of the kind it doesn't improve outcomes one iota they spent two or three years just having um just have getting having meetings to decide what they should talk about and what they should fund the niddk is funding the kidney x program so instead of preventing dialysis which should have been the case 20 years ago when i published my 2002 paper they're, they're giving prizes to make dialysis machines wearable on your belt. I mean, give me a break. Where are the principles of public health? I mean, the 1920s knew better than we do now. I think we're a victim of a, a very oligarchic control. I think Francis Collins did more damage than, than anybody realizes, and so did Tony Fauci and And they were both you know, aiders and the of each other. I mean, we have wasted several generations' worth of time, let alone money, in this eagle project for the research of in, in the u s and in Europe. It, they follow the same the the same blind path. And the reason why it's so successful is because it preserves the lucrative healthcare industry. All the money's made in hospitals and dialysis units, and genomics has been kept from revolutionizing healthcare and shifting disease to outpatient only and mild disease at that. And that's what uh, these these slave owners are holding over our heads.
0: Well, I agree with you, there. You know, I, I no medical training, um, but I did look at a lot of health disparities, and I've worked with one of these uh, these uh, think tanks on health disparities, and and that is something also I think in the future that we should um, delve into a little. I mean, so much depends upon as I'm always saying your zip code. What you have access to, what you don't have access to, is so dependent on your zip. And many people think that it is just zip codes contained into, in marginalized communities, but it isn't. Um, you can drop your finger on a zip code in Nebraska, and the health care is worse than it is in many of the most marginalized communities in the country. You know, there are some places where infant mortality is just completely off the charts. It's like in a fourth world country, not a third world country, here in the U.S., and people don't talk about that. I mean, there are so many different aspects of what counts as true health care. I know that for some people it's just medicine and the doctor. But for people who look at it more broadly, you know, public health, they look at everything, the food, the water, the housing, and you can't speak to people about that. Because when you talk about health and medical health, the lane is so narrow. And people only talk about two or three different things. when I talk about health, um, I don't, I'm not trying to talk about uh, or going to your field, but what I am talking about is the environment writ large, you know, the environment writ large, mental health, physical health, the health of the community you live in. These things are not all independent.
1: They Look are. at Pine Ridge Reservation. You know, yeah. they lack power. Anytime there's a big snowstorm, the, the you know the power lines go down. They can't heat their houses. They don't have adequate insulation. They mm-hmm. don't uh, they don't have enough blankets. There aren't any mm-hmm. buffalo anymore to provide mm-hmm. really warm blankets. I mean, mm-hmm. we we have I mean half the country lives in uh, in poverty, and seventy yeah. percent of baby boomers don't have funds to retire. I don't have no. funds to sort of, retire. Uh, no, well, we are yeah. in many ways a third world country.
0: In many but, ways a third world country. And, and we, won't, we won't discuss it, you know, for, and we will not discuss it. And, and to bring it up, questions, uh, people question your patriotism. You know, do you love America? Yes. Um, I'd like it better if it were. <laughs> I'd love it even more um, if it addressed some of these things and not the way they give out Thanksgiving baskets. I always uh, make that the example I use when I speak to people. It's nice that everybody gives you a turkey and cranberry sauce on Thanksgiving Day. My question is, what do you do the 364 days that are not Thanksgiving?
1: Well, you make the, and uh, you, you make the leftovers last.
0: <laughs> Absolutely hash the next day. Dr. Moskowitz, as always, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. Those of you that are holding on the phone and don't want to ask a question or are shy, um, there is no reason to be. Um, There are no foolish questions except those that are not asked. And there is no one that you should be hesitant to ask a question of. Uh, Until next month, Happy Thanksgiving to all that are listening. Dr. Moskowitz, would you please repeat your contact information so that people can have it?
1: I would be delighted to. Um, My website is genomed.com, G-E-N-O-M-E-D.com. Click on Contact Us, and I wish all our listeners a very happy Thanksgiving and a healthier life free from medical slavery
0: absolutely this is marcel reed i'm speaking to you on ts radio started by marty oakley good evening have a happy thanksgiving and we'll speak to you next month
1: This is Chuck the Goat from Goat USA. I wanted to break into your podcast and tell you about the new Goat USA store coming to Garden State Plaza on November 1st. If you love high-quality lifestyle apparel, then get in on the hottest athletic lifestyle brand. Come buy an iconic T-shirt and heavenly soft-hooded sweatshirt and start feeling like the greatest of all time. So come on out to Garden State Plaza in November and get your Goat USA swag. Goat USA, apparel for kids and adults. Chuck out. Oh, I hate turkey hunting. I'm freezing. Me too. It feels like 25 below. 25? Did you know you can get up to 25% off grocery store prices at BJ's wholesale club? Up to 25% off? BJ's sounds perfect for Thanksgiving shopping. They have really good turkey prices too. <laughs> then what are we freezing our bleeps off out here for? Let's go to BJ's. Get a butterball whole turkey for just 99 cents a pound. In club or bj's.com. BJ's. <laughs>
0: Absurdly Simple Savings.